For three decades, Baker Hostetler has hosted its legislative seminar among the premier annual public policy showcases on Capitol Hill. Though COVID-19 forced a hiatus in 2020, we are back, finding new ways for you to hear firsthand from Democrats and Republicans in the House and Senate on the latest legislative developments on tax, infrastructure, healthcare, trade, energy policy, and more. I'm Leanne Lee, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. Our guest today is Republican Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. Senator Cassidy is among the foremost experts in Congress on health care as a doctor, medical school professor, and co-founder of a community health clinic. He's known as a policy wonk and has a growing moderate profile among Senate Republicans. He's also active on tax policy as a member of the Finance Committee, as well as energy on behalf of the Gulf Coast on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Let's listen in. We're going to get started today with Senator Bill Cassidy. He is, he's the man of the hour. He's all over the, all over the headlines today. He's in the middle of every relevant conversation going on in the U.S. Senate today. He's, he's a physician. Uh, he is a, a leader on so many different issues, certainly healthcare issues. Uh, he's uh, been involved in so many things in his career, even before getting into elective office. But now he's, of course, in the middle of everything in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Senator Bill Cassidy, Bill, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining today, even as uh, things are ramping up even more for you. Hey, thank you, Mike. Good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Well, uh, of course, uh, of course, you're always welcome here. You're a great friend to both me and Heath uh, from our days in the house together. And, uh, you know, of course, leading the headlines today is uh, you had a conversation with uh, President Biden yesterday talking about infrastructure. What can you tell us either about that phone call or about what, what are the, uh, the, how are the negotiations going on a, on a potential uh, infrastructure package? You know, I think we can all agree, no matter your party, that there is a need for an infrastructure package. It's pretty clear the present, president would like to expand the idea of infrastructure far beyond traditional roads, bridges, and tunnels, for example. Uh, so the question is, what is the true scope? I think something that on a bipartisan basis, we can agree, yes, roads, bridges, but also energy, if you will, as well as the kind of um, resiliency that we need in order to support current infrastructure. Why do I say that? Well, if we have an infrastructure that promotes energy and we want to, and the president has a priority as we all do to lower the carbon intensity of our society, it's reasonable to include energy infrastructure, for example, carbon dioxide pipelines to take off the carbon dioxide and either to use it in another product line or to sequester it. I would also say, if you look at the coast of Louisiana where we have so much of that energy infrastructure, having environmental resiliency for those areas prone to flood or prone to other natural disaster to protect the built infrastructure is a reasonable part of that. And uh, the president is, I think, obviously committed to that. That's what he's offered. I think that's what I would also favor. And I think that also broadens the appeal of the package. Now, ultimately, I don't know if, if the appeal of the packages is as important as the appeal of the pay-fors. And so that if, if we run into trouble, and I'm sure we will, it'll be on finding an agreement on how we pay for this. So yeah, I know the president had been talking to Senator Capito, another former House member, friend of ours. Um, those uh, conversations seems to have ended. He, 
turned his attention to you and this bipartisan group of senators. Um, the president seems, at least uh, publicly, seems really anxious to get a bipartisan package together. Um, I know you mentioned pay fors that's frequently a sticking point between Republicans and Democrats, right, for anything. But do, how do you feel, how optimistic are you at this point that uh, the president's desire to do something in a bipartisan way, maybe uh, this effort that, that you're involved, when, uh, involved with, with both Republicans and Democratic senators, how optimistic are you that this is gonna bear fruit? I know you said you'll, you'll run into bumps along the road, so to speak, but um, how do you think this ends? So I'm actually at the point, Mike, where I can say that I'm not being optimistic nor pessimistic. Hmm. There's a next step to take. And as we do each next step, we will see what happens. Uh, I think the advantage of the bipartisan group is that frankly, that softens the White House line potentially. Hmm. And the advantage of a bipartisan group, it may allow Republicans to be a little bit more giving, if you will. And so as opposed to that, which kind of is, is between the White House and Shelley with her team, this may have more of a chance to demonstrate to the president that which Democrats would accept that he may not have been aware that they would accept. Uh, I, th I think I can fairly say that, but also from the Republican side. So I'm hoping that goes forward. And again, as to optimism, uh, all I can tell you is that obviously time is kind of speeding up right now. So as opposed to giving my optimism, I'll tell you that we do have next steps planned and we'll know quickly the results of those next steps. Well, we're, we're anxious to hear about those. We're, we, we here at Baker Hostetler have a bipartisan team too. My, my friend and uh, bipartisan partner here, Heath Schuler, has some questions as well. Uh, we'll kick it over to my Democratic colleague, Heath. Well, first of all, uh, Senator, thanks for uh, joining us. And uh, I enjoyed our time together in Western North Carolina. And obviously, uh, your wife and, and, and my wife have a very common uh, uh, goal in mind is helping kids with dyslexia having a child two children with dyslexia you the same it looks like you guys have done a very good job of opening a school there in louisiana and being a part of that so i just want to say you know congratulations to you and the work that you guys are making a difference in so many kids lives thank you Heath. first i gotta say first thing i'm going to say is that LSU is playing Tennessee in a super regional this weekend. And uh, that is true. <laughs> we both know who each of us is, is rooting for. <laughs> Absolutely. As, as regards dyslexia, it, according to Dr. and Dr. Shaywitz from the Yale School of Medicine, it affects 20% of our population. Now, if you look at, um, you know, your children and my children, we had our children diagnosed and we were able to afford the tuition in order to get those children's needs met so that they could achieve their potential. But this has an incredible uh, implication for economic disparity. If your family is poor, no matter what the race, uh, quite likely you will not have the resources to get your child diagnosed. Most public school systems do not screen for dyslexia. And if they do, then they don't have the appropriate program to intervene. Now, as we speak of racial disparities, frankly, on education, it starts with the fact that 50% of children of color do not read at grade level by grade three. And as the adage goes, you learn to read by grade three and you read to learn after grade three. They never learn to read so they can never read to learn. 
my wife has research coming out soon, uh, but there is al already research um, data in the literature that there is a disproportionate number of dyslexics in the incarcerated population. Makes total sense. Illiteracy is a major risk factor for criminal future criminal behavior. Dyslexia is the leading cause of illiteracy. So undiagnosed and untreated dyslexia is you can draw a straight line between that and the fact that we have increased rates of incarceration for certain groups and decreased levels of achievement for certain groups. I consider it a civil rights issue that we begin to screen all children for dyslexia and put in the appropriate intervention. And Heath, that is my long-term goal on that particular issue. Well, sir, as you well know, if there's ever anything that I can do to help personally, please let me know because that's dear to my heart because I've watched my children early on struggle and now, you know, going through those programs, uh, my son made the Dean's List, you know, oh, two yeah. semesters in a row now. And, you know, you get to realize that, you know, we, we do have tools that are available and we just got to make it affordable for all the children in the U.S. Absolutely. And congratulations on your son. Well, sorry to, uh, to kind of a little bit get off subject, but I want to kind of go back to a lot of the policies that's going on now. And the Republic has been very consistent in what, you know, anything about raising taxes or otherwise changing the 2017 tax reform is a red line. Uh, is it safe to say that the red line remains in place? If you need 60 votes, you have to have obviously at least 10 Republicans and maybe a couple more if you lose some Democrats. So even if you get three or four Republicans that would be willing to retreat somewhat on the Tax Cut and Jobs Act bill, you know, it's probably safe to say you wouldn't get 10 or 12. Um, and, and the rationale for that is not just pride of authorship, but rather lower taxes ushered in an economy unlike anybody had seen in our lifetimes uh, before the COVID pandemic. You know, by that I mean we had record low unemployment, which is to say record high employment for every single group. African-American, veterans, Hispanic, the disabled, high school dropouts, women, you name it, every group with wage growth disproportionately in the lower quintiles of wage earners. So it isn't just, again, pride of ownership that moves Republicans in this direction. It's what they feel is an empiric uh, proof that those economic policies led to the prosperity that particularly benefited uh, Americans who had been previously left, left out of the economic pie. So if you look at the, um, you know, the three very large bills, you have the, the Biden's jobs plan, you have the family plan, families plan, and you have this infrastructure bill, you know, all of that trying to get accomplished before the recess in August. You know, tell me what that formula looks like if, uh, if reconciliation uh, is in process, you know, how, do, how are Democrats able to get you know, you kind of stated, how are they able to get these policies uh, across the finish line uh, without, you know, a lot of support from the Republicans? Is there, is, what does that compromise look like ultimately and in, in the amount of money that you're going to have to have to be able to pass this legislation? I mean, that's, you know, we're not talking billions, it's trillions of dollars now. So if I could channel my inner Chuck Schumer, which frightens me to even attempt to do so. <laughs> Uh, he knows that he only gets one bite at reconciliation, and that would have to be something that his more moderate members agree with. So I'm guessing that for those things that have the greatest chance of bipartisan participation, he would, if he's got three bills, he's going to take the one bill, the two bills that have the most 
opportunity for bipartisanship and to try and take those without using reconciliation. And then he would take the one in which he knows he can't get Republicans and do that with reconciliation. But I think it's also important to note, way back when I took a, um, a political science course, and they said that there is a strong statistical relationship between the success of a presidential agenda and the majorities that he has in Congress. And even LBJ, seen as the great uh, president working with the legislature, achieved all his successes before he lost his majorities. You know, JFK died, LBJ just skyrockets up in terms of congressional majorities. He passes everything that he wants to pass. He loses his majority. And then he became somewhat of a regular president in terms of getting his agenda through. Same with FDR. So I do think just looking at it, it'll be difficult for the president to get his agenda through at all unless he wants it to be bipartisan. And that's where I come back to uh, Republicans need to have a seat at the table. Bill, I, I want to uh, circle back on one more question on infrastructure. We want to get to healthcare and energy too. I know you're very involved in both, but on these infrastructure negotiations, you're also, I think, talking to some of the, your old house colleagues or some folks in the house. And they, of course, have almost as tight a margin in the House uh, as, as you all have in that 50-50 Senate. Um, sometimes it's effective to affect, you know, sort of pre-conference legislation like this, kind of have House and Senate working in tandem together, or at least talking to each other. I know Josh Gottheimer and other sort of House moderate uh, Democrats have been mentioned a lot of the news articles. How, how are those conversations going if they exist at all? And, and how do you see this sort of um, this attract with both the Senate and the House on, on, a, on a possible infrastructure deal? If I said to the two of you and to the associated audience that Congress has been a little dysfunctional lately, uh, you would laugh and a kind of rise sort of, yep, that's true. So Josh and I are both part of a group called No Labels, which is a bipartisan bicameral group. You can have, you can be a liberal as liberal and conservative as conservative, but nonetheless, this is a place where you try and find common ground. Been very useful for me because if we know that leadership has their interest, rank and file has our interest. And Josh, who is a Democrat, uh, House member of the House of Representatives and I, a conservative senator, uh, have had multiple conversations through the time. Josh and Tom Reed, the Republican counterpart for Josh at the time, participated in the December group that brokered agree an agreement when Pelosi and Mnuchin could not. Similarly, Josh had been talking kind of just as friends now to try and figure out what we could both accept and maybe get colleagues to accept. So I think we, so when margins are so tight, you have to think as we both know, but just the same, not just in terms of bipartisan, but also bicameral. And so working with Josh has allowed it to be both bipartisan and bicameral. And it gives a point of leverage on every side because the margins are so thin on every side. So just hats off to no labels for introducing me to Josh. And hopefully this comes to fruition. Well, Josh certainly is a workhorse over on the House side, and you are certainly a workhorse on the Senate side. So uh, uh, if anybody can get this very, very difficult uh, uh, bill over the finish line, I imagine it might be you two and a, and a group of others like you. Let me pivot, uh, Bill, if I can, to healthcare. You're a physician. You're always involved in healthcare conversations in the U.S. Senate. Uh, the, the issue of prescription drugs has been you know, on everybody's minds and agendas 
for, for years. There doesn't seem to be any legislation right now that I, I'm seeing anyway that has broad bipartisan support that it would need to, to, uh, to pass. And of course, it's always this tension between um, making sure that we continue to have the innovation in the drug industry that we're seeing. We've, we saw this, uh, this drug this week uh, uh, approved for Alzheimer's, incredibly uh, exciting. You know, there's so many millions of Americans and their families struggling with Alzheimer's. And, uh, but it also comes with a certain price tag that uh, a lot of people say government needs to help people afford that. Um, how do you, what path do you see forward for uh, a potential drug legislation uh, to keep both the innovation and help make these incredible products affordable for people who need them? I do think we have to start thinking about all of these issues differently. First, as regards to specific legislation, I am working with uh, uh, Senator Menendez, uh, Democrat from New Jersey. I know that others are working on different pieces of legislation to try and find one that can address these issues. There's no single way to address the high cost of drug cost, uh, no silver bullet, but there is silver buckshot. And so if you trim, 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 trim all the way around the margin, you eventually lower the cost. I will give credit to the Trump administration working with Congress because there was a series of bills, each of which was a silver buckshot that would lower it at the pharmaceutical counter, that would lower it at the retail cost, the wholesale cost, et cetera. And in general, drug costs tended to go down. You bring up the new Alzheimer's drug, which is the issue of extremely expensive drugs that uh, meet a great market need. There's a lot of ways to address that. Um, Value-based purchasing is what people speak of. A little difficult to implement and define, but it would base payment upon the effectiveness of the drug. That actually seems a reasonable way to handle these medications. I'm gonna speak in the particular, Mike, because we can be so kind of, okay, there's no single solution, but let's, let's talk about a case. What about genetic therapy? Genetic therapy, we really have to think about how to, how to price. It may be that you can give a, just, just stay with me, although this is not where the gene therapy is right now. If you take a child with sickle cell anemia, a few years ago, it was estimated they would have $45 million of healthcare cost, a million dollars of healthcare cost by age 45, okay? A million dollars by age 45. Um, but if you give them the dose at week, at week zero, uh, you know, they're born, you give them the, the therapy, you would save a million dollars. But if you give it at age 44, you probably wouldn't save anything because the damage has already been done from the sickle cell anemia for the previous 44 years. So in value-based purchasing, you can imagine just as an example, okay, we're gonna price the gene therapy at a million dollars and you're going to get 1 45th of that every year of the person's life until they become 45. And so if you give the dose at age 44, uh, then frankly, the drug company would not be incentivized to do so. But if you give it on the first week of life, you would receive the full payment. Now, there are other ideas as to how to price these expensive drugs, but value-based purchasing has to be part of that. And for gene therapy in particular, we have to think about that. Um, 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 and by the way, if anybody in the audience wants to have further discussion and has other ideas, 
I'd welcome that they contact me. Senator, as a physician, you know, you know, you, there's been a lot of talk about um, antimicrobial resistance concerns in the UK. You know, should that trigger an alarm here in the United States? What are you know, what are some of the concerns? Is that is that the silent pandemic that's uh, that's coming? It certainly could. When I was in uh, residency, uh, the they would come out with a new medication. The drug companies would heavily promote it. Uh, you would use the new, the new antibiotic and the drug companies would get back their cost of development. But the fact that it was so widely used inevitably led to resistance. Now, the idea is you want to come up with a, a medicine which may be expensive to produce, but you don't want anybody to use it unless it's absolutely necessary to use it. Which is to say the drug company can no longer recoup their cost by, uh, by heavily marketing. On the other hand, uh, if you have a Medicare program that, that pays hospitals and diagnostic related groups, okay, you come into the hospital, you have pneumonia, you're gonna get X amount of dollars, period, and no more and no less, but you could give a very expensive medication to benefit this pneumonia, that blows that DRG out of the water. The hospital cannot make their margins by giving a very expensive drug that is not included in the diagnostic related group payment. So here you have a drug company that needs to recoup their cost of development by charging higher prices, but a payment system which will not allow those higher prices to be reimbursed to the user of the drug. We need to have some sort of different system where if under strict criteria, that more expensive drug is used, then there can be an additional payment made by Medicare to the provider. Um, we have been promoting the Disarm Act, which is a way to promote innovation among our antibiotics needed for these difficult to treat, highly resistant bacteria. And, um, and I'm doing that, I think that's with Senator Casey right now. Um, and so there are things out there we can do to your point, Heath, it is something whose time has come. We need to do that now. now speaking of innovation, uh, you know, for years, everyone's been talking about telemedicine. COVID hits, and then everyone's now doing telemedicine, or at least they had been for the first, you know, for the past year, my family included, uh, have a doctor online. With that, do you see, I mean, do you see any unintended consequences going to more telemedicine that we're seeing currently, both from a physician standpoint and from a patient standpoint? I don't know if we yet know how to price it. There's an initial cost to buy the equipment, but theoretically it would be less expensive to actually do, you know, for the doctor who's leasing office space, if instead of having five days a week, a receptionist, a file clerk, a nurse, and uh, another nurse, uh, and she's paying rent, and there's always that kind of slowness between moving patients in and out of offices to be seen by the physician. If now she's just sitting in her closet, not having to rent space, doing everything on an electronic health record, and the receptionist is not needed because you've already lined up these telehealth appointments, you can imagine that the cost basis of our practice, the overhead, if you will, is less because of telehealth. But I'm not sure physicians are buying that. Uh, they still have their cost of, um, of um, the salaries for the nurse that they have to pay, even if she's not working, 
the cost of the EHR, the cost of their malpractice insurance, their own salary, et cetera. So I do think we have to work out the cost basis of this. There's clear advantage in some cases from telemedicine. A child neurologist friend of mine, she says she would much rather evaluate an autistic child in the child's home environment where they are comfortable by telehealth as opposed to having the child drive two hours through traffic uh, into a strange sterile setting. And when the child shows up, the child just is, the autism is just totally, you know, encapsulated the child. So we see the clear advantages. Uh, so, um, uh, so there is that trade-off, what's the cost basis, given the clear advantages, and one more thing, what is the potential for fraud? Um, uh, you can imagine that somebody could just sit in their closet and bill for visit after visit, the visits each taking five minutes and accomplishing nothing except a billing code. So I also think we need to figure out how to make sure that one to 2% of fraudsters um, don't blow the system for everybody else. Bill, I want to, want to pivot to energy. I know it's so important in your home state of Louisiana and so important to everybody in the country. We, uh, we, I think a lot of people's awareness was raised uh, on the, uh, you know, with the recent cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline. Uh, you know, I, I imagine energy infrastructure may be a part of these uh, infrastructure conversations you're having. I would I'd be surprised because I, I know it's something that you're very focused on being from Louisiana. Um, what are your thoughts on the security of our energy infrastructure or oil and gas pipelines? And is that a part of some of these conversations you've been having recently? So the, as regards specifically the energy infrastructure, both of you remember our um, colleague in the House of Representatives, Mike Rogers of Michigan. And, and Mike used to say, there's two types of businesses in the United States, those that know they've been hacked and those who don't know they've been hacked. So um, uh, it is clear that there can be a large scale cyber attack on electrical facilities. One brought down the grid temporarily in the Ukraine, but there's also been utilities in the United States which have suffered cyber attacks. And the Colonial Pipeline shows you the potential consequences of that. So I do think if you're just gonna speak of cyber, that there's gonna be an, uh, a needed effort to make sure that we have cybersecurity for all elements of our economy, but particularly for energy. Why do I say particularly for energy? Because literally energy powers the, less, the rest of the economy. If you shut down the grid, the hospital can work temporarily on generators, but that only goes so far. But your air conditioner doesn't work. And so if you're at home with COPD on a hot, dusty day and your air conditioner is not working, then that in of itself brings a problem for that COPD patient who can't breathe when she begins to inhale that dust. So I do think that hardening our cyber systems across society, certainly including energy, is absolutely essential. So I know we're short on time here. I'm gonna ask one last question on flood insurance. It's something that you being from a coastal state is, uh, I know it's important to you. And I think we're on our 16th short-term reauthorization of the, the flood insurance program. I know you've been working with Bob Menendez. You mentioned Senator Menendez before from my home state in New Jersey. Um, how, how do things look? And, and what, are, what are your uh, predictions for perhaps a longer term extension of something for the, uh, for the flood insurance program? Well, um, so 
of course, people think of flood insurance and there's a lot of misconceptions. You're not insuring beach homes, you know, at the expense, you know, most people who are insured are of modest means and the insurance only goes up to $250,000. And these are folks who in my state are the ones that power, that work in the refinery that produces the gasoline that goes through the colonial pipeline so that you have the gasoline you have in New Jersey. So, so these are heart of America people. Um, so we've worked consistently with Menendez and others to come up with packages that would make the program more affordable for the homeowner and more accountable to the taxpayer and more sustainable to society. Some of this legislation has been incorporated by rule by FEMA, even though we've not passed legislation. So even though we've not been able to pass the reforms we wish, we can still see that the program has been put on a more accountable, affordable, and sustainable pathway. There is more to do. Uh, I, I, I do think that if we have an infrastructure package, which the president proposes roughly $50 billion for increased resiliency, that in of itself would uh, decrease the risk for those in high-risk areas. Michael Bennett and I have just put forward legislation that would give homeowners who live in natural disaster prone areas a tax credit for taking measures to make their home more resilient. So there's things both within the NFIB or the disaster relief programs, but there are also things that we can do outside of it that would otherwise decrease risk. I think we have to take a holistic uh, approach. It's only going to get worse um, as more people live in areas prone to drought and as sea levels rise uh, and as more people live near water, it's gonna grow, so it's gonna take a more holistic approach. Thank you, Senator Bill Cassidy, Mike, and Heath. If you have any questions for Mike and Heath, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.